If you would, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, where we pick up uh, where we left off last week. And before we go to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask now that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts, that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. And as we do our duty, Father, help us to do it with a humble reliance upon the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week we began with a question that I prefaced by saying you didn't have to answer and today we're going to do the same thing. Last week was, have you ever been arrested? Well, today, uh, here's the question. Have you ever been threatened and told not to do something or to do something that was clearly against God's word, God's revealed will for his people? Have you ever been, in other words, told... To disobey God. Now there's a lot of stuff in scripture that is unclear. But what is needed for salvation and what is needed to please the Lord is clear in scripture. So I think we all kind of know what those things are. Have you ever been threatened? Told don't do this or do this. And it's clearly it goes against what scripture, what God is saying. Well, if that was the situation, uh, what was the first thing you did when you got out of that, when you got away from those people? Did you make plans for revenge to get back or to get even? Uh, There's a public figure out there who says when he gets hit, he hits back. When he gets punched, he punches back. Is that what we see in God's word? Do you make plans for revenge or do you pray? And if you did respond by praying, how did you pray? For what did you pray? And and we're going to see that in today's text as we continue looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. You see, Acts is our history and knowing our history, who we are, and where we've been, and being thankful for our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is a necessary component as we move forward into the future. You see, in Acts, we're all given a front row seat to see how Jesus kept His promises to build His church and to be with His church now through the powerful presence of His Holy Spirit. Acts, the book of Acts is given to inform our faith, to strengthen our faith, because it reminds us that Christianity is grounded in God's acts in history. You see, we need to tell ourselves over and over again that the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. The first word is what God has done. The response is what we are called to do in grateful response to the Lord's grace. I want us to, for a moment, briefly review uh, where we were last week, the first 22 verses of chapter 4 in defending the gospel. And we remember uh, there was a trial, and, and, and two 
important truths emerged. We saw that first, the gospel will be opposed by those who adhere to a man-made religion. You see, you had the Sadducees, kind of the liberals of the day, and the, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the conservatives of the day, united in opposition to the gospel. It's interesting that people are hostile to Christianity for completely different, even contradictory reasons. Have you ever noticed some say Christianity is too hard? Some people say it's too easy. Others say there's too much law, and others will say there's not enough law. Why? Why do people oppose the gospel for what would seem to be contradictory reasons? Well, People will use any and every argument possible to defend themselves from one thing. The exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus himself made an exclusive claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Peter says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So first, the gospel is opposed, but second, the gospel will be defended by those who are given spirit-empowered boldness. We'll see today that the apostles are no longer before the council, rather they are with fellow believers in the church. And I want us to start by just looking at verse 23 in the first half of 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had to say to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Their immediate action upon being released was to seek out other believers. The community of faith, the church, the communion of saints. To pray with and for others. As our shorter catechism explains why we say our Father who art in heaven. Notice they went to their friends. Their own people, their companions, their company. It's an intentional word choice. You see, people that would be natural enemies in Christ become friends. It's a great description of the church. Friends who are united in Christ. And the only thing these friends could do was to express their dependence upon God. And they did it in prayer. You see, prayer was an exercise ingrained into their lives by both the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus. You see, Jesus taught prayer, but Jesus also prayed. And He invited His disciples to be with Him often as He prayed. And their prayer, as we will see, was shaped by what God had said to them in Scripture and through what Jesus had said to them. Earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that they, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And that devotion to prayer, that Christian hearts united in prayer, is continuing. Now this, 
believe it or not, is the longest recorded prayer in all of Acts, and indeed Luke and Acts. And it may have been, as I mentioned earlier, an echo of Hezekiah's prayer um, recorded in Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 19. It's a model prayer, I believe, for us. How? How is this a model prayer? Well, first, it's a prayer of praise. Uh, Let's pick up where we left off in the second half of verse 24 and go through 28. And said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. First of all, notice that the prayer is addressed to the sovereign Lord, our sovereign Lord. This is a rare use of a particular word that literally is despotus. And we get the English word despot, but unfortunately despot has some negative connotation. But it refers to a slave owner, a ruler with absolute unlimited power. They praise God for who He is. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. Those of you with us know that um, the Westminster Confession of Faith starts with the chapter of the Holy Scripture because that's the only way we know anything else. And most of you here have read the book On Being Presbyterian. And interestingly, the author had to choose where to go in chapter 1. And he starts off chapter 1 God is king, the sovereignty of God. That was his foundational beginning point. God is sovereign. Years ago, I read a book in addition to the Bible and it changed my life. It was sitting on the book table of a small little church in the dusty town of Wichita Falls, Texas. It was called, When People Are Big and God is Small. It... it, It changed my life, for lack of a better word. They're starting their prayer off, not with that title, but with this title. When God is big and people are small. They are praising God because first, He is the Lord of creation. They have just come from a court where the Sanhedrin, the 71 members of the Jewish ruling council, are ruling and they realize, no, they are not the supreme court. There is a higher court, a higher judge. It is the Lord of creation. He rules and reigns. He's also the Lord of revelation. They are praising Him. And you see before you that they are talking about the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures that God has spoken through His Holy Spirit by the means of the mouths of His servants like David. They're affirming that Scripture is truly and totally the Word of God. They're quoting an Old Testament passage, Psalm 2. And they ask themselves, what does Psalm 2 tell us? And they're interpreting it now in the light of Jesus' death. 
because they are beginning to understand that the attacks that they are experiencing were a continuation of the attacks that Jesus experienced. So they're praising God because he's Lord of creation. He's Lord of revelation. And he's also the Lord of history. As God executes his decrees in the works not only of creation, but of providence. Because God's sovereign will and control caused even his enemies to do what he wanted. I remember the story of Martin Luther um, uh, thinking that uh, he was in trouble. Somebody was reminding him that Satan was after him. And he reminded himself that, yeah, but, but Satan is, is God's Satan. He, he may be on the loose, but he's on a leash. That's important for all of us to remember. He's the Lord of history. They, they see that there's kings and rulers and people, both Jews and Gentiles, uniting to plot and take action against God and His Christ. Herod and Pilate, they recognize, come together and bring together a, a strange alliance. It's an international conspiracy. And yet all of this is taking place in accordance with God's plan. As Lord of history, they are affirming God's sovereignty as well as human responsibility. They are working out, they are aware that God is working out His plan. And because they can acknowledge that God is the Lord of creation, the Lord of revelation, the Lord of history, because of that and they're praising Him for it, their prayer is calm. It's calm. You see, the church spoke and still speaks to God in praise. They affirm who God is. They're saying, in other words, God, you made, you spoke, and you decided. What comfort there is in that when we recognize that and we praise God for that. We see it's a prayer of praise, but it's also a prayer of petition. And we see that in beginning in verse 29. And now, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They again recognize that what they are facing is what Jesus faced. The disciples are starting to believe that just as the threats, the threats ultimately against Jesus were in vain, so also would be the threats against them. They were confident that everything was under his control. And you see that in this shift in the beginning of 29 and now. You see, with their vision of God clarified and their hearts humbled before him, they are now ready to bring their petitions to him. You see, this prayer of praise is the theological foundation for the prayer of petition. Before they run into the presence of God to ask, they run into his presence and they bow their hearts before him and they acknowledge that God is God. And we see in this prayer that there's a central request that is preceded and followed by another request. The first, look upon their threats. 
interestingly, the crisis that they are uh, uh, facing is almost mentioned in passing. And it's not so much as a request as it is an appeal to God to take note and act accordingly. In other words, God, act in line with who you are in accordance with your justice. But then we get to the main request. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. To continue to preach. To continue to proclaim. You see, this God-centered prayer is not for personal safety. But it's rather for personal courage to persevere in their Christ-glorifying task. They did not ask for deliverance from danger. Although if you read the Psalms, it is an appropriate request to ask God to get you out. That's not what they're asking. They're asking rather to stay in. To not be delivered from danger, but to be given courage to preach. They want to witness to Christ as He commanded them. And they assume that opposition will continue. They are undeterred by the prohibition of the council and they are unafraid of their threats. And the third request continues, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed. It's not so much a request as it is expressing confidence. Asking for their enablement in the proclamation of the word to match what God is doing in his visible activity. And his sovereign ability to heal. One commentator writes this, quote, Their demand is not now for miracles of vengeance or destruction such as fire from heaven, but for miracles of mercy. They're asking God to be merciful to others as he has been merciful to them. Now children, I need your help. From the children's catechism, from the first catechism, what is prayer? Prayer is praising God, giving thanks for all His blessings, and asking Him for the things He has promised in the Bible. And you see that. They're not directly giving thanks, but they've got a thankful heart, a thankful attitude. They are praising God and they're asking God. You see, this is a good model to use. There's praise and there's petition. God always answers prayer. Maybe not the answer that we're looking for, but His answer. And maybe not necessarily on our time frame, but on His timetable. But before we look at God's answer, it's important to see that this prayer of praise and this prayer of petition is also a prayer of recognition. In our adult class, we've been looking at a Ligonier Ministries series called A Time for Confidence. And uh, the teacher, uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols, uh, says that R.C. Sproul, this would have been before he died, used to often say to him, and said to him recently, our biggest fundamental problem is that we don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. You see, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves is what we see running through this prayer. In particular, we see them recognizing the connection between who they are and who God is. And so first of all, there is a recognition of the connection between their weakness and God's strength. 
Notice that they spend a great deal of time reflecting on and praising God for His greatness, His power. They don't simply ask for boldness, but they actually, and I'll say this carefully, they actually heal themselves of their fear by meditating on the attribute of God that's most antithetical to their fear. You see, back in January of 2013, we started our series in Ephesians chapter 6, which we read a few moments ago. And the opening message had this outline. The battle we face, the weakness we possess, and the strength God provides. That's here. They are weak. God is strong. Sounds like a great hymn, doesn't it? I am weak, but He is strong. So my friends, think with me about when you have been afraid. Or think about what you are afraid of right now. What do you need to know the most? I think you need to know God. His power. His power. But there's also a recognition of their present situation and the promises of Scripture. They go to Psalm 2 and they remember David's words saying that world leaders will be hostile to the anointed one, to the Messiah. And they make the connection, that's Jesus. They recognize that just as they have been hostile to Jesus, they will be hostile to them as well. But they also realize that those civil and religious rulers are doing whatever God's hand has directed them to do. And this recognition provides them with enormous calm and confidence. You see, they connected their situation with Scripture. Did you notice that the same court, the Sanhedrin, that sentenced Christ to death, is the same court that has now released them? Who's in charge? God is in charge. Everything is under His control. Paul would basically say, dead or alive, I'm the Lord's. So when you're afraid, what do you need most? I'd say, I need to know God's power. And when I'm worried, what do I need to know the most? I need to know God's promises. That He is ruling. He is working out everything for His glory and for the good of His people. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He has promised. And thirdly, there's a recognition of the connection between their outward circumstances and their inward hearts. Notice that their prayer is not a triumph celebrating their release, but it's a prayer for courage and strength to face the coming days. It's not a prayer of moral judgment. They're leaving that to God. But it's a prayer for courage and strength. It's not a prayer for their opponents to be crushed or for them to be spared opposition. It's a prayer not to run from, but rather to face the opposition and suffer faithfully. You see, the biggest enemy is not our circumstances or the wickedness and the injustice of the world but rather our own proneness 
to disobedience. You see, our biggest problem makes itself known each and every time we look in the mirror. The story is told years ago of the Times of London, back in the early part of the 1900s, uh, wrote a question and said, answer this question, the, what is the biggest, what is the world's biggest problem? What is the world's most pressing problem today? And a British writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton supposedly wrote in and said, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You see, he's aware that if the outward circumstances aren't the problem. The problem really resides in the heart because my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. The hymn writer says. Well, Luke concludes this narrative account in the life of the early church with God's answer. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place was shaken. God responds with a sign of His approval. God is saying, I'm here and I will answer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God sends a new filling, an outpouring of His Holy Spirit. Believers are already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But just as Paul says to believers in Ephesians 5, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There needs to be a renewed manifestation of His power among believers. And notice that the power did not come automatically, but rather in response to their expected believing prayer. I'm continuing to go back to that passage in Luke that says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so what the church needs most is they need the Holy Spirit. And we see continuing to speak the Word of God with boldness. God enables them to continue to speak the Word, the Gospel with boldness. John Chrysostom, uh, an early church father, a preacher known as Golden Mouth, around 400 A.D. said this, of this passage, of this verse. The whole place was shaken, and that left them all the more unshaken. Did you hear that? The whole place was shaken, and that left them all the more unshaken. Turn with me to Acts 28, and look with me at the last two verses of Acts. And think with me about this prayer for boldness. Luke writes of Paul, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that encouraging to see that prayer answered not only then, 
but it continues to be answered? You see, here at Grace and Peace, we're called to worship, to welcome, and to witness. And I think we all want to be witnesses. We all want to share the gospel, but I think there are often a couple of obstacles. Uh, First, we think that we don't know what to say. And secondly, and maybe more significantly, we are afraid to say something. Maybe not of going to jail, at least not yet, but of what others may think Amazingly, you may be embarrassed. Are you afraid of being embarrassed? Are you afraid of what people may think of you? That's one of the reasons we need the church, because you're not alone. There are other people that think and believe what you believe, what you think. What keeps you from telling other people what you have seen and heard by faith? Is it because you don't know what to say? Or are you afraid? Is God small and people big? Because when people are big, God is small. But when God is big and rightfully in the windshield occupying the entire windshield of your car as it were everything else will be in its proper perspective what is needed is to proclaim the gospel and I want us to know that that's not just on the outside it's on the inside and it's not just the gospel of coming to faith in Jesus it's the gospel of growing in faith you see my friends do not underestimate your influence in other people's lives when you point one another to Jesus, the one who forgives, to Jesus, the one who strengthens, to Jesus, the one who walks with you. You see, we proclaim the gospel to the lost, absolutely. We're also called to proclaim the gospel to one another. And what is needed is confidence in the message and courage to speak. Because when you are confident and courageous, you are bold. Acts 4.13, Acts 4.29, Acts 4.31, and the end of Acts. You are bold. Because you see, boldness for a Christian is not a natural ability. Boldness is not loudness or forcefulness. Rather, boldness is a supernatural gift. That God gives His people to be unshaken in the midst of a world that is shaking. And where do you find boldness? Where do you find that supernatural gift? It's when you are in the presence of a powerful person, the Holy Spirit. You see, the church sought the presence and glory of God not for a change in the circumstances around them, but rather for a change of heart in them. The adoration and awe of a sovereign God are not understood by the church as an excuse for inactivity. Rather, for us and for all believers, the sovereignty of God is the foundation for all of our activity. Why would we do what we do if God is not sovereign and in charge and in control? You see, through prayer 
He will work as we, his people, worship him, welcome one another, and bear witness that there really is no salvation, that there really is no life, true, abundant, full, everlasting life. There is no life. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that our first instinct is to ask you to change the circumstances and not our own hearts. But Father, as we see in these words that you have preserved for your people to be strengthened and encouraged, we see a prayer for boldness. Oh, Father, would you give us the quiet confidence, that supernatural boldness, that in Christ we have all we need. And it's what anyone else needs as well. Father, be pleased to change our hearts, to be more like the one who proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and invited others to repent and believe. For we pray in his name. Amen.